Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now, in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-381. You know... Another federal district judge appointed by Obama, another radical, has just ruled that the Justice Department has not provided an adequate reason for changing its legal team on the citizenship slash census case. Have you ever heard anything like this? So the Supreme Court says, well, you know, it's probably constitutional to ask the citizenship question. We're not going to get to that right now, but we really don't like or believe the justification the majority says that the Department of Justice is giving, so start over. Just in time to miss the census every 10 years. And now a federal district judge, Jesse Furman, another Obama hack, he rules, well, you know, we know you want to change your legal team, Department of Justice, but uh, you haven't really given me a good reason to do it, so no. So no, they can't change their legal team? <sighs> Boy, some days, I'll tell you. Some days, it's unbelievable. You know, if I hadn't already written a book on the courts, I'd write another one. The Men in Black was my first book. I think I wrote it, good Lord, 2005. I think it was published in 2005. Another New York Times bestseller. I'm sure they really are appalled by all these New York Times bestsellers. How the, uh, how the Supreme Court is Destroying America was the subtitle. Every institution of government is out of control. And all push in the same direction towards centralized, iron-fisted federal control by fewer and fewer individuals. And the only reason or way that the elected branches are able to function is if they keep moving left. Otherwise, the courts stop them. Whether it's immigration, whether it's the environment, whether it's the census, there are now no rational separation of powers lines between the judiciary and the other branches. The judiciary jumps in and decides all the issues, whether they're cultural, such as same-sex marriage, and on and on and on, and immigration, health care. It's just truly appalling what's happened. Now, of course, there's a lot to talk about this evening. But I got to thinking, as I always do, about what's taking place on our border. The havoc, the anarchy, the chaos. Planned anarchy, planned chaos. 
Where have we heard about this before? Remember the Clower-Piven strategy? Do you have a distant memory at least about this? Discover the Networks is a site. Discoverthenetworks.org. And it points out that it was first proposed in 1966 and named after Columbia University sociologists Richard Andrew Cloward and his wife, Frances Fox Piven, longtime members of the Democratic Socialists of America, where Piven today is the honorary chair. The Cloward Piven Strategy seeks to hasten the fall of capitalism by overloading the government bureaucracy with a flood of impossible demands, thus pushing society into crisis and economic collapse. Now, this Cloward-Piven strategy can be applied in different forms and in different subjects and in different ways. That is precisely what's taking place on our border. This is precisely what's going on respecting immigration. In their 1966 article, I'm bouncing around, I can't read the whole thing, it's too long. Cloward and Piven charged that the ruling classes used welfare to weaken the poor. That by providing a social safety net, the rich douse the fires of rebellion. Poor people can advance only when the rest of society is afraid of them. Cloward told the New York Times in September 22, 1970, rather than placating the poor with government handouts, wrote Cloward and Piven, Activists should work to sabotage and destroy the welfare system, or in this case, sabotage and destroy the immigration system. The authors also asserted that A, the collapse of the welfare state would ignite a political and financial crisis that would rock the country, again, replaced with immigration. B, poor people would rise in revolt. C, only then would the rest of society accept their demand. Precisely what's taking place on the border with illegal immigration. The key to sparking this rebellion would be to expose the inherent inadequacy of the welfare state. Or in this case, overwhelm the system. The Border Patrol, ICE, detention centers, administrative law judges. Cloward and Piven's early promoters cited racial organizers saw Alinsky as their inspiration. Make the enemy live up to their own book of rules, Alinsky wrote in 1971, Rules for Radicals. When pressed to honor every word of every law and statute, every Judeo-Christian moral tenet, and every implicit promise of the liberal social contract, human agencies inevitably fall short. The system's failure to live up to its rule book can then be used to discredit it altogether and to replace the capitalist rule book with a socialist one. In other words, the system's failure to live up to its rule book, in other the inability to cope with what's taking place on the border, discrediting the system, ICE, the Border Patrol, physical barriers, and so forth and so on, Discredit it all together and then replace it. That's exactly what they're doing. And it is the democratic socialists. I know it's oxymoronic, but we play along. It is the democratic socialists who are promoting this.
the Alinskyites. Cloward and Piven noted that the number of Americans subsisting on welfare, about 8 million at that time, probably represented less than half the number who were technically eligible for full benefits. Thus, the authors proposed a massive drive to recruit the poor onto the welfare rolls, like a massive drive to recruit aliens to rush our borders. Calculating that the system would be bankrupted even if a fraction of potential welfare recipients were to demand their entitlements. The result, predicted Cloward and Piven, would be a profound financial and political crisis, like on the border, that would unleash powerful forces for major economic reform at the national level. The Cloward-Piven article called for cadres of aggressive organizers to use demonstrations to create a climate of militancy. Then the authors predicted the following would happen. Again, put it in our current you know, uh, circumstances and in the mindset of what's taking place on our border, respecting illegal immigration. So what would happen? Politicians intimidated by threats of black violence, they write, would appeal to the federal government for help. Carefully orchestrated media campaigns carried out by friendly left-wing journalists would float the idea of a federal program of income redistribution in the form of guaranteed living income for all, working and non-working people alike. You believe this? They wrote about this in 1966. It's happening right in front of your eyes. Local officials would clutch at this idea like drowning men to a lifeline. They would apply pressure on Washington to implement it. With every major city erupting into chaos, Washington would have to act. The Clower-Piven strategy was an example of what are commonly called Trojan horse initiatives. Mass movements whose outward purpose seems to be providing material help to the downtrodden, but whose real objective is to draft poor people into service as revolutionary foot soldiers, to mobilize poor people in mass in an effort to overwhelm government agencies with a flood of demands beyond the capacity of those agencies to meet like DHS. Cloward and Pibbon cautioned that the flood of demands which they were recommending would break the budget, jam the bureaucratic gears in a gridlock, and bring the system crashing down. Fear, turmoil, violence, and economic collapse <coughs> excuse me, would accompany such a breakdown, providing perfect conditions for fostering radical change. That was the theory. In fact, that theory is working on our border, ladies and gentlemen. That's what's taking place. The very people who have caused these circumstances intentionally, first claiming it was a manufactured crisis while they were creating the crisis through limits on budget, by obstructing the president on the wall, by undermining ICE, calling for its elimination, by undermining the Border Patrol, by claiming detention centers or concentration camps, while voting against more detention beds, while voting against more administrative law judges, while choking, choking the the financial ability to cope with what's taking place, obstructing the ability to secure the southern border, Then they become the vocal, outspoken radicals against what they have created. 
chaos, anarchy, overwhelming the system. Because in this case, they want to destroy any lawful, manageable immigration system and have open borders. Because the hard left and the Democrat Party have decided that they are going to promote race-based politics. And they have concluded that the best way to get power and retain power is to change America's demographics, to change its citizenry, to attack citizenship, to water it down. Washington Examiner records 60 million Hispanics in the United States, 52% of the population growth. Because the Democrats have decided in a very diabolical and evil way that this is their future. Race politics. Race baiting. Race division. That's what they've concluded. And so Pew writes, I didn't make this up. These people study it. The states with the fastest Hispanic population growth tend to have relatively small Hispanic populations. North Dakota is an example. District of Columbia, South Dakota, Montana, New Hampshire. That's because of the biggest percentage changes, but the biggest in absolute numbers are on the border. One of them happens to be a state called Texas. Another one, not on the southern border, is Florida. This is all intended as a radical plan. Cloward and Pivens, Alinsky tactics, overwhelm the system, create, create the chaos and the anarchy, then condemn it. Condemn the law. Condemn the president. Condemn the ideas of a wall. And then eventually you'll get what you want. That is exactly what's happening on the southern border. That is exactly what's happening on the issue of immigration. Right in front of your eyes. I'll be right back. Mark Every human being has a common problem. How do I live well? Our happiness and well-being depends on how we answer that question. Hillsdale College President Larry Arn argues that the best book ever written on this subject is Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And a new free online course from Hillsdale College shares Aristotle's teachings that will help you lead the most complete, happy life possible. Register for this free course, Introduction to Aristotle's Ethics, How to Lead a Good Life, featuring lessons from the greatest self-help book ever written, at levinforhillsdale.com. In just 10 on-demand videos, each only 30 minutes long, you'll learn how to confront the chief obstacles to happiness and make the choices that build good character. Aristotle presents a guide for securing a virtuous life. And if you take this free course from Hillsdale and heed Aristotle's advice, your life will change for the better. You can learn how to lead a good life just as every Hillsdale College student does. It's yours for free. 
at levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Cloward and Piven. Now, the Cloward Piven strategy of overwhelming these systems than blaming the system that they overwhelm in order to destroy it and to use the Alinsky Marxist personalization process has been in play. So you see, it's, it's Donald Trump who's re- responsible for separating children from parents, even though if we don't know if they're parents and those are actually their children. It's Donald Trump who's responsible for the detention centers, even though he's tried to build a wall. So they create havoc. They provide no answers. The president's trying, almost on his own, to address the border problem. And first he's condemned as a racist, concocting, manufacturing a crisis. And now he's condemned as a racist who is not properly handling a crisis that he should have seen coming. None of this is possible without our media. None of it. Using two techniques that are discussed in Unfreedom of the Press, propaganda and pseudo-events. And propaganda, remember, propaganda, as Bernays said, the minority, that is masterminds or elites, have discovered a powerful help in influencing majorities. It's been found possible so to mold the mind of the masses that they will throw their newly gained strength in the desired direction. In the present structure of society, this practice is inevitable. Whether of social importance is done today, whether in politics, finance, manufacturing, agriculture, so forth and so on. Propaganda is the executive arm of the invisible government. First and foremost, this means using the media, ladies and gentlemen, or the media exercising its own ideologically driven will as a propaganda enterprise. And you've listened to this program long enough now and you've read Unfreedom of the Press. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The Democrat Party media. The progressive agenda. The social activism agenda. This is what we get. And so when you have the Cloward and Piven strategy applied to immigration in the southern border. With the Alinsky-like attacks on the president and anybody who dares to stand up calling them racists. The propaganda of the media. Then you have exactly what's taking place in this country. The evisceration of citizenship. I'll be right back. Since its founding in 1844, Hillsdale College has provided students with sound learning of the kind essential to preserving our civil and religious liberty. Now, I want to tell you about Imprimus the free monthly speech digest of Hillsdale College. Imprimus is dedicated to educating citizens and promoting civil and religious liberty by covering important cultural, economic, political, and educational issues. First published in 1972, Imprimus is one of America's most widely read publications in support of liberty, with more subscribers, 3.9 million, than the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And recent Imprimus publications have addressed issues like free speech, the regulation of big tech, mental illness, and the American medical insurance system. 
And because America's founding principles are so important, Hillsdale offers in Primus absolutely free of charge to anyone who requests it. That's right. You can subscribe to Primus for free. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to visit inprimus.hillsdale.edu for your free subscription. That's in Primus, I-M-P-R-I-M-I-S dot Hillsdale dot E-D-U. Welcome to Hillsdale. Liberty's Voice, Mark Levin. Talk with that voice now, 877-381-3811. Let's continue, okay, as we discuss this. I try to make it as interesting as possible and entertaining as possible, but these are important issues to break down what's taking place, to rip the facade off of all of this. The propaganda we get from the media uh, is intended to create static and confusion and confound us on what's taking place. What's taking place isn't simply a difference of opinion on budgetary matters and so forth. What's taking place is a counter-revolution to the American Revolution. And it manifests itself here and there, and here it is on immigration. So it's an all-out attack on immigration laws, immigration security, border security, and the nation-state. Why? Because the hard left cannot get what it wants through normal citizenship. We, the American people, were not bred this way. We don't buy into their agenda. So what do they have to do? Destroy the system, the immigration system. Destroy any notion of a southern border. If you object to what this does to our society, whether it's our school systems, whether it's our jobs, whatever it is, you're called a racist. Because the left is using people from Central and South America to achieve their ends. Their ends, power. The destruction of the status quo, much of which they've created, by the way, the destruction of the of the nation state, the destruction of the civil society and replace it with their radical utopian agenda, which, of course, is hell on earth. They care about Hispanics. They don't care about African-Americans. These are group assignments. These are all tools to create jealousies and anger. This is constant racism, racism, racism argument. If racism doesn't exist, they seek to create it, whether of the image or reality. This is what our kids are learning in colleges and universities. This is what you and I are seeing on our television screens. And then they try to limit how you can describe it. The president calls these media outlets enemy of the people. Then he, you see, becomes the enemy. Then suddenly he's the enemy. He's the perpetrator. And the people who are perpetrating these things, the propaganda and the, the pseudo-issues, they become the victims all of a sudden. Oh, the president must be a dictator. Oh, the president must be a racist. Oh, the president must be against immigrants. Oh, the president, and same with us. We must be white supremacists. Why are we white supremacists? Well, you must be white supremacists. Because those are mostly brown people, not white people, who are trying to get over the border. So you see how, how they close the circle on this. Here's a smaller example. 
not quite as dramatic, but it's in the press lately. You've heard over and over and over again that these women's soccer players are paid less than the men, and they deserve equal pay. Now, I told you before this is BS, and I don't really care about it, but we're going to circle back to this. There have been several pieces on this now. You can read them yourselves at Forbes, and here's one at National Review Online by A.G. Hamilton. After the U.S. women's soccer team won the World Cup on Sunday, a major focus from the team and the media was a complaint over an alleged gender pay disparity. Several media outlets published articles claiming there was a discriminatory pay gap relative to the men's World Cup that needed to be remedied. Articles in the Washington Post, CNBC, and Business Insider pointed to the difference in total World Cup prize pools, $30 million for the women in 2019 versus $400 million for the men in 2018. An individual pay on winning teams, $110,000 for the winning female players in 2019, versus $420,000 for the 2018 winning male players. Almost all of these articles were misinformed. But you see, the media want to believe, and the media want you to believe, that this is a sexist society. A systemically racist, systemically sexist society. Again, that's why I wrote on Freedom of the Press. You must understand the media in this country, the modern mass media, to understand what's taking place with the Clower and Piven strategy, with the Alinsky strategy. And who gives this voice? In reality... Relative to the Men's World Cup, it was actually the women's teams that were being paid a much higher share of what they brought in. While these articles noted that the U.S. women's team brings in more money than the men's team, they all managed to ignore the more relevant disparity in revenue. The men's tournament brought in over $6 billion in revenue in 2018. The women's tournament, it is estimated, to have only brought in $131 million in 2019. So the prize pools are taken from those revenue totals. In other words, the women's prize pool was approximately 23% of their total revenue, while the men's prize pool consisted of approximately 7% of the revenue. The winning men's players received only about four times as much as the winning female players, despite bringing in over 45 times as much revenue. So as a business, like it or not, men's soccer brings in $6 billion. Women's tournament soccer brings in $131 million. These numbers should make it obvious that there is no substantive case that the women's team is underpaid relative to their male counterparts. But the media managed to ignore those facts. Propaganda on a pseudo event. There is no gap when you look at the facts. Instead, the media focused on comparisons between the U.S. women's team and the U.S. men's team. In other words, rather than the entire tournament, cup, and beyond. Constantly pointing to the fact that the former wins a lot more than the latter. But that comparison makes no sense. Each team should be compared relative to its peers, or at least to its equivalent in the other league. The fact that the women win more is irrelevant, 
as they play in a different league against a different level of competition. It's safe to say, safe to assume, the U.S. women would have trouble competing at a similar level as the men. It would be like comparing the earnings of a great arena league football team to those of a bad NFL team. A lot of the confusion stems from the media focusing on the fact that the U.S. women's team brings in more revenue than the men's U.S. team. But that metric, based on a different number of games and focused solely on the U.S. teams, is irrelevant when it comes to the prize pools for for an international competition. So again, to underscore, the men's tournament, men's, not just U.S., the entire men's tournament, brought in over $6 billion in revenue in 2018. The entire women's tournament brought in an estimated $131 million in 2019. Now you know why the men are paid more, even though they get a smaller percentage of the revenue. It's just logical. It's not sexism. It's a fact. But as long as you have a media that pushes propaganda and this fake issue, this fake issue being pushed by the media and being pushed by the anti-American leftists who headed that soccer team, they want to believe. I even saw some of our anchor friends on my favorite cable network fall for all of this. So this disparity is a pseudo-issue. But you see, it tears at America. It trashes the American system. You didn't get all the facts from the media because they didn't want you to have all the facts. Again, unfreedom of the press. The successful reporter is one who can find a story, even if there's no earthquake or assassination or civil war. If he can't find a story, wrote Borston, then he must make one by the questions he asks of public figures, by the surprising human interest he unfolds from some commonplace event, or by the news behind the news. And if all this fails, then he must give us a think piece, an embroidering of well-known facts or a speculation about startling things to come. It's a new kind of synthetic novelty which has flooded our experience that being pseudo-events, pseudo-events, the common prefix pseudo comes from the Greek word meaning false or intended to deceive. That's exactly what they did. That's exactly what they did. I hope this is putting things in perspective for you. I'll be right back. Mark in. You know, our nation's oldest colleges were founded to teach students to seek truth, recognize what's beautiful, and hold up what is good. But the vast majority of them have abandoned their missions, locked in the grip of political correctness. They no longer allow free and open discourse, Rejecting the idea of objective truth, they peddle moral and cultural relativism. Thankfully, none of this applies to Hillsdale College. For almost two centuries, Hillsdale has remained true to its original mission, to provide sound learning of the kind essential to preserving civil and religious liberty and intelligent piety. 
Now, as Hillsdale celebrates its 175th year, it remains committed to offering its students the very best liberal arts education in the land, as well as to extending its mission nationwide through its many outreach efforts on behalf of liberty. These include free online courses, the publication of its Free Speech Digest and Primus, its Kirby Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship in Washington, D.C., and its Barney Charter School Initiative, which is helping to establish classical K-12 charter schools nationwide. Pursuing truth and defending liberty since 1844, this is Hillsdale College. And let me add, I think so much of Hillsdale College. I donated an original copy of a compilation of the Federalist Papers, which sit today as I speak at the Kirby Center. Hillsdale College, America's College. To further underscore the points I've been making for the last 50 minutes or so, I want you to listen to something you've probably heard all day, but now you have a real substantive context for it. And that is Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco yesterday on the census question, on citizenship. Cut two, go. But this is about keeping, you know, make America, you know this hat, make America white again. They want to make sure that people, certain people, are counted. It's, it's really disgraceful. And it's not what our founders had in mind. And it's not what... How now, we first of all, this is, this is very confounding. I thought our founders were white racists. I thought the nation was founded by white racists, by slave owners. Now she's saying this isn't what the founders intended. The founders didn't intend what? What the hell is she talking about? Does she have any idea what she's talking about? No, she doesn't. But she's an old line radical leftist. That's what she, the part of the Democrat Party in California, that's what she comes from. The radical old line left. Took her under their wing in the 60s and 70s. And created Nancy Pelosi and sent her to Congress. This is true. And so there she is. You see, ladies and gentlemen, make America white again. That's why the president wants to ask if you're a citizen on the census form. Make America white again. What does one have to do with the other? Nothing. We have many citizens in this country who aren't white. Why don't they want to know how many citizens there are in this country? Well, you know why. It's a rhetorical question. Because citizenship doesn't matter to them. That's number one. Number two, they don't want any information to get out there that might cause people to start thinking, uh, wait a minute. If there's only that many citizens, how many non-citizens are in this country? And so they have to control the language. They have to control the activism. They have to control the government. And they have friends in black robes. We call them judges appointed for life. Mostly Obama judges. Like this one in New York today. Who said that the Justice Department can't even replace its attorneys? Who are arguing this census case. Because he doesn't think they gave him an adequate reason. Excuse me? 
You see, anything goes, ladies and gentlemen. And the first thing that goes, the rule of law. But this clown Pelosi's not alone. There's little Dick Durbin of Illinois. Little Dick Durbin. Cut three, go. We now know why the real reason for putting the citizenship question on the census. To discourage Hispanic Americans from answering the questionnaire. Why would they be discouraged? Now listen to how racist he is. Why would putting the citizen question on the questionnaire discourage Hispanic Americans from answering the question? If you're a Hispanic American, naturalized or born American citizen and so forth, why is he assuming that Hispanic Americans are illegal aliens? Because you see, it is little Dick Durbin who's the racist. How do you discourage Hispanic Americans, that is American citizens who are Hispanic, from answering a question on whether they're citizens? That's not what he means. That's not what he's talking about. What he means is it'll discourage illegal aliens from filling out the form. So you see, the entire system now has to be worked around the illegal alien. Because the illegal alien is more noble than the citizen. The citizen is a second-class citizen, even if they're a Hispanic citizen. They're of no consequence. So now the entire census system and these federal judges and the Supreme Court, the majority led by John Roberts, they exist to advance the cause of the noble, illegal foreigner who's in this country. Well, what happened to the American citizen? Doesn't matter anymore. So what? When you go to vote, can you prove your citizenship? What, are you racist? Can't ask it. Or you're not supposed to. Must be a racist. Attack the system. Destroy the system. And then rebuild it in your own image. Listen to Beto O'Rourke. Low IQ Beto O'Rourke. Nobody else has this. Mr. Producer dug this up on his site on YouTube. Cut one, go. Here we are in Nashville. Um, I know this from my home state of Texas. Um, Those places that formed the Confederacy. um, That this country was founded on white supremacy. So let's just... First of all, the Confederacy and the founding of the nation are two different things. But when you're so filled with evil propaganda and essentially illiterate demagoguery, it doesn't matter. History doesn't matter. So you see, ladies and gentlemen, Nancy Pelosi was citing the founders to defend her position, and now Beto O'Rourke is trashing the founders to defend his position. It doesn't matter. Their position is, burn it down, baby. Burn it down. I'll be right back. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. 
everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. Again, it's fascinating watching this issue, Obamacare, which is being challenged in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, a panel of three. Apparently, two of the appellate judges were skeptical that Obamacare could still be upheld given the elimination of the individual mandate. Because why? The individual mandate is the linchpin to this issue of taxation. John Roberts changed the language, basically rewrote the statute to say, well, it's a tax here. It's not a penalty. It's a tax, and we know the federal government can tax. He even screwed up the tax provision of the uh, United States Constitution, but it didn't matter. He's become highly political. Even Justice Anthony Kennedy at the time was very upset with what Roberts had done, but it didn't matter. So I'm a little confused here because I thought Obamacare was so bad that they needed to replace it with Medicare for all. Didn't they? Don't they? We need single payer because Obamacare is not cutting it. So even though Obamacare went a long way in destroying the private health care system, it didn't destroy it enough. So now we need Medicare for all. That is, destroy Medicare. Again, this is the Cloward, Piven, Alinsky wing of the Democrat Party. More than the wing, maybe the heart and soul of it. You get to destroy Medicare, destroy private health insurance, but do it in the name of Medicare. That's how they get you. But what's the other problem? Anybody know? If you listen to this show, what is the other problem here? No doubt this case will get all the way back up to the United States Supreme Court. We know what Justice Roberts will do. He's a sellout. It's a complete sellout. He's not a constitutionalist. He reads the uh, New York Times and he wants to be liked. Brett Kavanaugh is the other problem. Brett Kavanaugh is the other problem. Why? You remember before he was nominated and when he was nominated, I warned you about Brett Kavanaugh. There were only a handful of us. But I felt like I led the way on this in many respects. And I read to you on the air some of his opinion in which, or, or, some of his, or some of his comments during the oral argument in the court, and I dug them up, and I read some of them to you, where Kavanaugh was trying to uphold Obamacare based on the tax provisions of the United States Constitution. And I said, this guy is no originalist. And in fact, Roberts stole, effectively plagiarized from the arguments that Kavanaugh had made to paste together, and that's what he did, almost at the last moment, a majority opinion on Obamacare. And the leftists on the court were thrilled. The progressives on the court said, whatever you want, go ahead, and they let him do it. And you'll also recall when that decision came out, We spent the entire program pretty much going over that decision, 
going through the majority opinion, and I told you, this thing was slapped together. The way it was written, it was very poorly written. It looked like it was cut and pasted. Cut and pasted, and it was. We now know. But the problem's going to be Brett Kavanaugh. Because Brett Kavanaugh is not an originalist. He's not. And I fear, even in his first full year on the court, he's going to move even further to the left because that's what happens in their first two years, maybe three years. The justices who are appointed by Republicans, they tend to hold relatively firm and then they begin to move. But Kavanaugh's already begun to move. Because he was in the circuit court for 15 years. So all these groups who were celebrating him, all these law clerks who would bash anybody who dared to question Kavanaugh, many of them through National Review Online and other locations and places, even on Fox as these uh, guests would appear, surrogates who would tell us with absolute certainty that Kavanaugh is a constitutionalist. Well, they were selling you a bill of goods because I said he wasn't. And a lot of people became very sympathetic to him because of the horrific, you know, hearings that he went through, which were absolutely outrageous. You and I witnessed them in real time. It's not history. It's current events. We witnessed it in real time. We know what took place. We saw it. We discussed it for days and days and days. But that doesn't change the fact that he is not and never was an originalist. And look... I hope I'm wrong, but I'm not wrong. And I haven't been wrong about it. All right, I want to move on. So little time and so much to cover. Let's go to Liz. Liz Warren, who's one one thousandth of a percent Native American. One hundred percent crackpot. She's now sloughed that off. Just like this idiot Richard uh, Blumenthal, what's his name? Blumenthal from Connecticut. I uh, saw combat in Vietnam. No, he didn't. Doesn't matter anymore. He's one of the good guys, right? So Elizabeth Warren is at an event yesterday. And she's approached by two girls who say they're Jewish. And they're with one of these self-hating Jewish organizations. And they're springing up everywhere now. Where essentially you have these secularists who hate their own faith. In addition to hating their own country, they also hate Israel. Don't, don't ask me to explain it. It doesn't matter. It's a, it's a, it's a, a psycho issue. I, I, these, these people are absolute crackpots. I, I can't explain it. I don't even think Freud could explain it. It doesn't matter why. It just matters that it's a fact. And they're very much attracted to the Democrat Party, as most haters are. Cut five, Mr. Producer, go. Hi, we're American Jews. We really love the way you're fighting corruption. We'd really love it if you also um, push the Israeli government to end the occupation. Excellent. So I'm here. Thank you. The Israeli government to end occupation. Yes, yes, so I'm there. I'm there. How many more times do I have to say, if you're Jewish and you're a Democrat, there's really something wrong with you. If you're Jewish and you vote Democrat now, there's really something wrong with you. 
I say this as a Jew. But it's worse. But it's worse. Our friends at the Daily Wire have a piece. Jordan Schachtel. I'm a big fan of his. He, uh, he started writing a conservative review. He's a very, very bright young man. And he points out, over the course of her tenure in Washington, Democratic presidential contender Senator Elizabeth Warren has adapted her position on Israel to cater to her most energetic base of support, the far left. What once began as at least a rhetorically uh, pro-Israel position has transitioned into a full-fledged Israel hatred. The Warren campaign has hired anti-Israel extremist Max Berger, who is co-founder, if not now, that's one of these groups I just told you about, a group that supports the boycott, divestment, and sanctions BDS movement that seeks the eventual elimination of the Jewish state. Additionally, Berger has come under fire for expressing sympathy for the militant Palestinian terror group Hamas, as Adam Crater of the Washington Free Beacon reports. Anyone who wants to be friendly with Hamas has no business being in a presidential campaign, Rabbi Abraham Cooper of the Simon Wiesenthal Center told the Free Beacon. It's very straightforward. I've met Rabbi Abraham Cooper. He is terrific. Smart. An American patriot, too, by the way. Rabbi Cooper added, If that's the message that Elizabeth Warren wants to send to Jewish progressives and the rest of the American Jewish community, that the person she put in charge of outreach wants to be friends with Hamas. No way, Cooper said, adding that he finds it hard to believe Warren would be comfortable knowing one of her staffers has engaged in such rhetoric. She's going to have to deal with this right now, he said. In a Monday campaign town hall, Senator Warren told activists from If Not Now and a staffer for Senator Sanders, that she would commit to pressuring Israel to end its supposed occupation of the Palestinians. You know, it's just incredible that the perpetrators become the victims. Just incredible. And in addition to Rabbi Berger, the Berger hiring, excuse me, Max Berger, in addition to the Max Berger hiring, it's worth noting that Senator Warren has long supported been supported by Democrat mega-donor Paul Egerman, who's currently serving as her campaign treasurer. Now, who's he? Egerman is an advisory council member to the anti-Israel group J Street. This is another disgusting, notorious, self-hating group, which was created to service former President Barack Obama's anti-Israel agenda. Right, Harry? That's an insider thing. Senator Warren appears to be committed to going to extreme lengths to demonize Israel and its supporters. This week, she pledged to use the powers of her office to launch an investigation into the supposed foreign influence of Jewish Republican donor Elliot Brody, who coincidentally or not happens to be a major supporter of the state of Israel. Quote, Warren's now making a campaign issue of an investigation that she demanded of a political opponent who's yet to be charged with a crime, much less convicted, Red State Strife wrote. 
Tuesday, in response to the new Warren campaign pledge, regardless of the merits of the case, campaigning on using your personal clout to strong arm the Justice Department into investigating someone who is a political opponent is something that just isn't done in American politics. Senator Warren's abandonment of our most vital Middle East ally, he writes, began gradually in 2015 when she and fellow Democrats boycotted Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's address to a joint session of Congress. In 2017, she slammed the Trump administration for publicly recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. A few months later, she targeted the Israeli military for its response to Gaza rioters. Then in 2018, Warren signed on to a letter, along with fellow anti-Israel presidential candidate, Marxist Senator Bernie Sanders, calling on the Secretary of State to do more to address the several crises in the Gaza Strip. The letter makes no mention of Hamas, the terrorist group that rules Gaza. And today, in 2019, you can find Warren drafting and co-sponsoring resolutions blasting the Israeli government's security policies. In February, she engaged in a total character assassination of the prime minister, claiming that Mr. Netanyahu is a criminal who is embracing right-wing extremism and manipulating a press. Of course, Senator Warren is just one of many 2020 Democrats who've completely abandoned our most vital Middle East ally to accommodate the loud leftist pro-Palestinian extremists that make up part of the Democrat base. Jordan Schachtel is a foreign policy analyst and an investigative reporter. That would be Elizabeth Warren. Where's the Anti-Defamation League? How come they're not calling her out? Well, the head of the Anti-Defamation League was a special assistant to Barack Obama. And that J Street was founded to support Barack Obama. Why the hell would the Anti-Defamation League take a reprobate who worked for Obama and put them the head? Well, why am I asking myself this question? This is what leftists do. This is what they do, these self-haters. This is what they do. And this is one of the reasons that Aach, that Aach likes Elizabeth Horn and Talib and Omar. You know, that crowd. May I say, the anti-Semite crowd, the anti-American crowd, the anti-Israel crowd. You know, my dear friend Bob Grant used to say, this is sick and getting sicker. And I know he would say right now, this is sick and getting sicker. I'll be right back. Mark If you have a moment, I want you all to go to BrickHouseLevin.com. Just go there and click on the Buy Now button so you can read the reviews. Over 1,200 five-star reviews, I might add. But this one caught my attention from Steve in Denver. I'm upset with Mark because he's got me hooked on Field of Greens. What a great product. Thank you, BrickHouse, for your amazing product and great customer service. I'm a monthly subscriber, and I won't live without it. And you're welcome, Steve. And subscribing is smart. You save money that way. Field of Greens is 
is made with real USDA organic fruits and vegetables and helps boost your immunity using antioxidants, prebiotics, and probiotics. Plus, they offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com or call 833-RING-BHN. Get 15% off your first order with promo code LEVIN. That's BrickHouseLevin.com or call 833-RING-BHN, promo code LEVIN. Yesterday I talked about NBC that did a ancestry check on Mitch McConnell and found that Two of his two great-great-grandfathers held slaves, owned slaves. And then they, they circled back and said, and yet he opposes a reparations bill. It was one of the most outrageous pieces I've ever read, quite frankly. It's not that I'm a fan of Mitch McConnell, as I said yesterday. But it was an unbelievably outrageous thing for a news operation to do. What are they trying to do? Push the reparations agenda, of course. But Mitch McConnell and his staff actually did a little bit of reading. They read one of Barack Milhouse Obama's memoirs. And in one of his memoirs, he points out that he believes he had relatives on his mother's side who owned slaves, who might even be related to Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. So a reporter, of course, followed up on the NBC News story and thought they had McConnell cornered and asked him about it. Cut six, go. Were you aware that your great-great-grandfathers were slave owners in Alabama uh, before the Civil War? And has that revelation caused you to change your position on reparations? You know, I find myself once again in the same position as President Obama. We both oppose reparations, and we both are the descendants of slaveholders. Bullseye, bingo, boom. And what does that have to do with supporting reparations? There's a great piece in USA Today after the bottom of the hour I want to read to you. And I want to read you this piece because it asks a very fascinating question. Under reparations, would Barack Obama be eligible to receive reparations? I mean, his father came from Kenya, wasn't a slave. His mother was white, or yes. His ancestors owned slaves. Would Barack Obama be paying reparations or would he be receiving reparations? More when I return. With a daily fake news dump pouring through your TV, mobile phones and computers, you may have missed some real news like the recent study in the journal Cell Metabolism. Scientists suspected a correlation between growing rates of obesity and processed foods But what this study discovered was that these foods also appear to lead people to overeat. Here's the bottom line. You need fresh fruits and vegetables in your diet, which is why I recommend that you start taking Field of Greens by Brickhouse Nutrition. Just one scoop of Field of Greens 
has a full serving of real USDA-certified organic fruits and vegetables. It helps boost your immunity using antioxidants, prebiotics, and probiotics. This is real food, not some fake supplement lab powder. Just read the nutrition facts panel on the side. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com, that's BrickHouseLevin.com, and you'll get 15% off your first order with the offer code LEVIN. You know you're not going to start cooking fresh fruits and vegetables, so let's not pretend. Just get one full cup of fruits and one full cup of vegetables every day with Field of Greens. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com, BrickHouseLevin.com, offer code LEVIN. Levin, making conservatism great again. Dial in now, 877-381-3811. You know, people are always asking me, Mark, is the X chair really as comfortable as you say it is? My answer is always yes. I always tell you the truth. In fact, I probably don't do an adequate job describing just how great this chair really feels. Take my advice, get one to feel it for yourself. And they make it very easy to do exactly that. Get one to feel it for yourself. Thanks to Extra's 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. 30 days. You have no risk. So if you're wondering if what I say is true, try it for yourself. And I know if you try it for yourself, you're going to be the biggest salesman for this chair with your family, friends, and so forth. Once you feel the X-Chair's patented Dynamic Variable Lumbar Support, or DVL, you'll understand exactly why I love my X-Chair so much. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and increase your productivity with the right model for you, X-Basic or X-1 through X-4. X-Chair can fit your body and your budget. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairlevin.com now, that's xchairlevin.com, or call them, 1-844-4-X-CHAIR, 1-844-4-X-CHAIR, I'm telling you, you got to try this chair. Go to xchairlevin.com now, use code XWHEELS, and you'll receive a free set of the new, really cool X-WHEELS with your chair. xchairlevin.com. That's xchairlevin.com, or call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. Well, we've discussed quite a bit in the first half of the program. We've gone deep, and I'd be curious to know what you're thinking. Chris, Los Angeles, California, where we are live and national on 870 to the answer, KRLA. Go! Thank you very much, sir, for all that you are doing. You are beyond description. Wow. Wow. Your value to this country. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Mark, I'm calling about um, the uh, judge's ruling regarding the uh, personnel at the DOJ. I'm trying to understand how he has the authority to... Um, direct the president as to how he can assign the personnel through the attorney general regarding any matter. Well, uh, he he says in managing my courtroom, you came in here not long ago, Department of Justice. You said you want this dealt with expeditiously. Now you come in here and say you want to change your legal team. 
And I, the judge, I say, no, I'll manage his courtroom. You wanted to deal with this expeditiously. You'll use the same lawyers. It is an outrage to answer your question. Absolutely outrageous. I'm frustrated. It, it, is, it is contemptible. So the Department of Justice can't even pick its own lawyers to argue its case. Can't change them. What, do you think that there is legal... Well, I guess you can appeal a decision like that, but you have to wait till the case is over and so forth. In other words, they're trying to get this done before the census papers go out. So right, right. the process is too slow to get this resolved by then, if you know what I mean. I understand. Thanks again for everything. Chris, Chris, don't hang up. I'm going to send you a signed copy of Unfreedom of the Press. Mr. Producer, do I owe you signed copies? Will you send me an email? Tell me. All right. We need to continue to do this. I really think it's important to push this out. Adam, San Leandro, California, 870 The Answer. How are you, sir? Uh, good. I got two questions for you. One is on this uh, reparations uh, topic. What would uh, what way can we find to reconciliate for slavery? And I'm talking about monetarily. Just what ways? What can be done in this great country of ours to show any form of reconciliation for slavery? Just like we don't ever want to forget about. I'll tell you, I'll tell you how. You embrace liberty. You embrace capitalism. You embrace institutions that promote humanity. You treat people as people. You allow people to choose the schools they want to go to rather than the schools that the National Education Association and the left-wing Democrats tell them to go to so they can get a good education. These are some of the things that you do. You treat people like human beings. You don't need the government, politicians, who we don't trust to begin with, bureaucrats, who don't know what the hell's going on in our communities and neighborhoods. You don't give them more power to decide who does what, who goes where, who gets what. That's not the answer. The answer is liberty. Liberty. That people should be free. That's what this is all about. Freedom, not government. I'll tell you what, I want to send you a copy of my book, Liberty and Tyranny. The no, mind you don't want the book? No, All no. Right. What, I'm, what I'm asking is this, sir, is this. I, I, again, that's, that, what you're talking about can be done for any and everybody in this country. What should specifically be. For, exactly. What could be, what, but we're talking about specifically forms of reconciliation can be done for... I, I don't believe... What, I don't know what you mean specifically forms of reconciliation. Well, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know what that means. The fact is that people who live in this country today were not slaves... The fact is that the vast majority of people who live in this country today are not children of slaves. The fact is the vast majority of people coming to this country legally and illegally today are coming from the third world or the undeveloped world. The fact is you're not listening to me because you're an ideologue. So I'll tell this to the greater audience. What you're looking for is some kind of economic reparation or some kind of, of government favor. And what I'm saying is that's not going to do the trick because there always need to be some other form of economic reparation or some other government favor because people have to live in liberty. People have to advance. We had a civil war. We had a civil rights movement. 
We had riots in the streets. We are now at a point in this country where people need to live as a free people. Thank you for your call. And that guy's name is not Brent. I forget his name, Mr. Producer. Adam. I mean, uh, that guy's name I don't believe is Adam either. Isn't he the guy that calls from Sacramento and these other... I, I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, I apologize. Boy, Los Angeles is, is wide awake here. They're a great KRLA country. Brent! Los Angeles, California, the great KRLA. Brent, I said, go. Yes, blessings to you, Gadol Hador, the Thank great you. one of the generation. Uh, <laughs> <I> wa- <laughs> go right ahead. Thank you. Since racism is in the, D of a, in the DNA of the Democratic Party, and the Cloward-Piven Congress is forcing President Trump to issue a fraudulent, fake census, I think on the part of Americans where the, the United States government has an obligation to send out a census, the citizens don't have to uh, respond to it. Or we can respond directly to the executive branch, giving him the, and the president our actual uh, citizenship information. Well, I don't know how he would do that as a clerical matter. <clears throat> And the government now says if you don't respond to their census, there are certain things that they will do to you. I don't know what it is. I've, I've never heard of that. In the past, I haven't sent in the census. You're the and, lucky one. And they keep attempting and they keep attempting, but, but they ask ridiculous questions, so I just ignore it. I don't think there is a, a legal obligation to respond. Well, you might be right. You might be right, but I would warn you this. If conservatives... If red state citizens and so forth don't respond, then you may have less representation in the United States House of Representatives. Mm. That's what I wasn't sure of. So really, it'd be better if the left didn't respond. (laughs) But I I just look at it the same way as uh, boycotting Nike and Starbucks and Disney. But we want to be counted. Mm. They do count people, even though they don't count citizens. All right. So, by the way, how many toilets do you have? Never mind. Never mind. I don't work for the census. All right, my friend. Take care of yourself. I love this question. What do you need with these question about citizenship? I can think of a thousand reasons. But why do you need to know how many rooms you have in your house? Why do you need to know somebody's income if they're filing taxes? Why do you need to know 90% of the questions that are on the census? Mr. Roberts. Justice Roberts on vacation somewhere, probably in Europe, saying highfalutin things to some group in who knows where, Paris. I mean, what kind of a dumb opinion did he write? Well, I don't really feel, you know, that the uh, argument that you gave here was, it really doesn't hold water as far as I'm concerned. Who cares what you think? Is it constitutional or not? So I recommend this. Why doesn't the administration send the entire long census form, which takes like 12 years to fill out, send it to the great Chief Justice John Roberts so he can go through it page by page as well as the instructions and decide what in there is okay? I mean, after all, he wants to rule the world. I'll be right back. Mark in. Do you wake up in the morning feeling sluggish and have to drag yourself through your day? Do you feel bloated, tired, and out of shape? Eating healthy is a habit. 
But most of us don't really know exactly what we should be eating, right? How much we should be eating and how to properly prepare it. This is why I drink Field of Greens every morning before I start my day. Just one scoop of Field of Greens has a full serving of real USDA certified organic fruits and vegetables. Helps boost your immunity using antioxidants, prebiotics, and probiotics. Now this is real food, not some fake supplement lab powder. Just read the nutrition facts panel on the side. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com and get 15% off your first order with the offer code LEVIN. Now you know you're not going to start cooking fresh fruits and vegetables, so let's not pretend. Just get one full cup of fruits and one full cup of vegetables every day with Field of Greens. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com, BrickHouseLevin.com, offer code LEVIN. I didn't forget the, the piece on Obama and reparations. Because I needed to address something else. So we'll swing back to that. Here's something interesting. There's over 2 million burglaries reported every year. That's one every 13 seconds. What's crazy is that only one in five homes have home security. And maybe because most companies don't make it easy. That's why Simply Safe is transforming home security... By breaking down those barriers to get you the best, most reliable, and comprehensive protection available. Simply Safe protects every door, window, and room with 24-7 professional monitoring. Their police dispatch is up to 3.5 times faster because they use video verification. Simply Safe has no contracts or hidden fees. The system is designed to blend right into your home. No wiring, no drilling. It's easy to order, easy to set up usually in under an hour. Round-the-clock monitoring is just $15 a month. Visit simplysafemark.com to get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. Go now and be sure you go to simplysafemark.com so they know that I sent you. That's simplysafemark.com, simplysafemark.com. All right. Reparations in Obama. By James Robbins. If the United States made amends for its history of slavery through reparations, would former President Obama be eligible to receive a payment? It's an interesting question that frames some of the thornier problems with the proposal. The most obvious issue is that Obama's father was African, not a descendant of American slaves or raised in African-American culture. Also, his white mother was a descendant of those who held people in bondage. And Obama noted in his autobiography, Dreams for My Father, that there was a family legend that he was related to Confederate President Jefferson Davis. So from a genealogical perspective, Obama is on the wrong side of history. This raises the issue of culpability. It's hard to make the case for reparations on an individual basis because all the people directly involved in American slavery, both victims and culprits, are long since gone. And parsing out the bloodlines of descendants to determine who's eligible or responsible is not only complicated, it also raises disturbing parallels to the exclusionary logic used by segregationists, not to mention the Nuremberg race laws. The issue becomes a matter of collective victimhood and collective guilt spanning many generations. But there's no basis for this in American law or tradition. The sins of the parents are not visited on the children, especially after 150 years. 
Plus, many people have no family connections to America of those times. More immigrants arrived in the United States in the three decades after the Civil War than had come during the preceding three centuries combined. And even more arrived in the first decade and a half of the 20th century. A minority of people in a limited number of states actually held slaves. Furthermore, those with ancestors who fought for the Union against slavery, one of Obama's great-great-grandfathers was a decorated Union veteran, may claim to be exempt from the collective responsibility. Some might consider the nearly 700,000 Union casualties to be payment in full, not to mention the 2 million additional men who risked their lives in the Union Army to abolish slavery. With respect to the payment, estimates of the costs range from the billions to the trillions. Would this be a one-time grant or a continuing annuity? And would the payment be means-tested? Multimillionaires like Obama and other African Americans of the upper-income groups seem more like representatives of American possibility rather than the victims of what writer Ta-Nehisi Coates described as a relentless campaign of terror. But is this issue just about slavery? Democratic presidential candidate Kamala Harris, also not a descendant of American slaves, argues the issue is much broader. She says America has a history of 200 years of slavery. We had Jim Crow. We had legal segregation in America for a very long time. But some reparations proponents acknowledge that culpability for slavery cannot be nailed down specifically, but that the reparations issue is part of a broader debate about social justice and helping the poor. Democratic presidential aspirant Amy Klobuchar said on Meet the Press that it doesn't have to be a direct pay for each person, but what we can do is invest in those communities, acknowledge what's happened. It hasn't this been happening already? It is strange to argue that the history of American slavery has not been acknowledged. It is ubiquitous in history, curricula, and popular culture. The National Park Service is required by law to emphasize the role of slavery in history at its Civil War sites and community development and other programs designed to ameliorate the impact of systemic racism have been fixtures of the political landscape, at least since the Civil Rights Acts and Great Society programs of the 60s. When proponents of reparations broaden the issue to that degree, they arrive at arguing for solutions that are already being implemented. And by detaching the issue from slavery, they open the door to other groups that may feel they have a claim against American society writ large. We saw this when presidential hopeful Elizabeth Warren proposed reparations for gay couples based on discrimination in the tax code. Even the word reparation is problematic. Obama, who did not pursue this issue during his presidency, noted in 2004 that the concept and its implication of a one-time payoff, quote, would be an excuse for some to say we've paid our debt, unquote, and not continue efforts to promote racial harmony. It's unlikely that a reparation would repair anything, but instead widen the breach. It's more likely to conjure indignation among Americans who will resent being lumped into a class of the collectively guilty for things they never did. Others may see this issue as a cynical political move. Democrats trying to energize the African-American base at a time when employment is at record highs and the Trump re-election campaign is planning a vigorous outreach campaign to minority voters. Obama's presidential election in 2008 was symbolic of, a, of national progress and overcoming the issues that reparations proponents want to revisit. He and other successful African-Americans are testaments to the opportunities that our country offers. Everyone, everyone, regardless of race or ethnicity. 
Reparations backer Senator Cory Booker called the viewpoint ignorant, but in fact it is informed by the same optimistic view of the country that supports his own pursuit of the Oval Office. If American society is, is as racist and stained with collective guilt as Senator Booker seems to believe, why would he ever think he could win the White House in 2020? Because to use one of President Obama's favorite expressions, that's not who we are. James Robbins, a member of USA Today's Board of Contributors, author of This Time We Win, revisiting the Tet Offensive. He's an expert on national defense, among other things. That is a beautifully written piece, and the logic is unassailable. I'll be right back. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, well, I have some inspiring news and some not-so-inspiring news, and I want to get to our callers. We have great callers here. I want to get to a few other pieces of information before the program's over. We only have three hours. Unfreedom of the Press has sold hard copy, e-book copy, e-audio copy, CD copy, 360,000 copies. It is the blockbuster book of the year, certainly um, substantive book of the year. Not one of these goofy memoirs or something. And when you look at this book and all my other books, um, I don't know how else to say it. Thanks to you, we are the biggest, I am, conservative author. This book is crucially important on freedom of the press, or I wouldn't have spent so much time talking about it before it was on sale and while it's on sale and going to book signings. It's not about money. I don't need the money. I know that sounds crass. I'm just being honest with you. This is about a mission. This is about a movement. So that's the good news. The bad news is from my perspective, it's only sold 360,000 copies. We can't build a movement on 360,000 copies. You need to sell a million copies. So that we're not going to achieve, I'm afraid. That we're not going to achieve. We have about 8.5 million listeners in terrestrial radio, AM and FM, millions more on the internet, digital and so forth. A percentage of Levinites have decided to engage in this movement. But we need as many Levinites as possible to engage in this movement. And you heard my discussion in the first hour how all this weaves together. It's like puzzle pieces. And the reason I spent so much time writing this book on freedom of the press with all the research and so forth is because this is a key, if not the key, element that is leading the counter-revolution to the American Revolution. 
that attempts to drag down this president's ratings, that attempts to push these phony pseudo issues and day in and day out feeds us propaganda. This is the most thorough undertaking of an examination of the media, an honest examination of the media, certainly written in modern times. I don't know how far back. So it's considered a wild success at 360,000, and maybe by the time it's done, it'll be 500,000. I don't know. But we've got to spread the message further. We have to do it. You can get the book at the library if you like, although I hear that most libraries that do order the book, the book is out. In other words, people uh, people take it. But there's ways, you know, e-book, e-audio. I prefer hardcover. I sit down and read a book. I read a hardcover book. The summertime is here on your vacations, whether you're around the pool, on the beach, in the mountains, wherever you are. Most airports don't have the book because Hudson has decided not to carry the book for the most part. So you have to bring the book to the airport. But if you go to a mall or a standalone bookstore or one of these warehouse stores, they have it. So I don't know how much this movement is going to be a movement. It is my hope that it is, that we can spread the word. Information is everything. Knowledge is everything. Idealism is everything. Movements, forces are built on this. The left knows how to do this. And we know how to do this too. But freedom of the press belongs to us. It doesn't belong to CNN and the New York Times and the Washington Post and MSNBC and the rest of them. That is a right in the Bill of Rights. It belongs to you, not to a corporation or multilateral corporations. I mean, they have these news platforms, but the purpose of a free press is for you. It's for this civil society. It's for this republic. It's not for them. They're destroying it, as I explain in the book. It is incredible to me. It's really kind of weird that this book would be number one five weeks in a row. The biggest selling, certainly conservative book in America. And it gets almost no attention, even in conservative circles. It's amazing. The Claremont books, nothing. National Review, nothing. I'm not attacking them. I'm just saying it's, it's really quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. And it's not that that would help with sales. It doesn't help at all. Nobody goes there. It's also interesting. I have conservatives coming to me now with books coming out. They want blurbs on their books. They want me to have them on my show to promote them. These are columnists. They haven't written a thing about this book. Not a thing. There's a fellow by the name of Wes Vernon. Wes Vernon's been around a long time. He's been a journalist and a columnist a long time. He's very highly regarded, including by me. And he wrote a nice piece that we've posted on my social sites. 
And I'm often asked this question. Why is your radio personality one way? And when you write books another way and so forth. And I explain to people, I'm the same person that you see on Life, Liberty, and Levin, Levin TV, you hear on the radio, and I write books. But different formats are different formats. And I've been asked this question for years. And then Wes Vernon, in a piece he wrote that I just saw and posted on my Facebook and Twitter sites, I think he summed it up. He called me a TV and radio hell-raising intellectual. Isn't that what he said, Mr. Producer? TV, radio, hell-raising, intellectual. Now, you may agree or disagree with it, but I think that pretty much sums it up. I'm not one of these green-eyed shade nerds who just sits there, you know, writes their stuff, and then <laughs> does that. I don't do that. Spent a lot of time reading, a lot of time researching, a lot of time writing. This is what I like to do, morning, noon, and night. I can't help it. I know it drives people nuts. I can't help it. It could be three in the morning. If I can't sleep, that's what I do. But I don't just write a book and walk away. I'm not George Will or whomever. I write a book and then I push the ideas as far and wide as I possibly can. I want to share them with people. I'm not happy just seeing a book on a shelf. Look at that. Book number eight. That's not good enough. It's not good enough. And I'm harder on myself than other people are on me. They would say, Mark, what's wrong with you? Five weeks in a row and 300s. It's not going to change the country for the better. That's the problem. It needs to be more widely disseminated. That is the mission and the message. And honestly, I don't know what else to do. It's up to you. It's up to you. And I want to thank all of you for your forbearance. And I want to thank all of you who've gotten involved, activists out there, all of you who have read it, all of you who are thinking about reading it. Spread the word. Look at the five-star ratings on Amazon. This book has 90 Seven to 98% five-star ratings. Now, every time I say that, the libs run in there and try and drive it down. They can do whatever they do. They're very clever. But read them, the five-star ratings. You won't be disappointed. As a matter of fact, I think in many ways, you'll say, I never thought of that. I never looked at it that way. Like the first hour of our program tonight. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Well, I've got a lot to cover, so bear with me. National security, defense, Iran. What are conservatives supposed to believe? What does conservatism tell us? The conservative believes that the moral imperative of all public policy must be the preservation and improvement of American society. 
This is chapter 10 from Liberty and Tyranny. Similarly, the object of American foreign policy must be no different. The framers understood the complementary purposes of domestic and foreign policy. George Washington's farewell address of 1796 is often misunderstood as a proclamation for isolationism. This ignores its historical context. At the time, Washington was concerned with the very survival of the young nation. The address is a call for prudence. That's the key word. Not only in dealings and relationships with foreign states, but in issues that threaten national unity. In his address, Washington warned against the influences of popular passions or establishing permanent and overarching alliances to or prejudices against any foreign power. He issued this warning because the American public was deeply divided in its sentiments relating to the European powers that were at war, that is, France and Britain. The nascent political parties, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, or Democratic-Republicans, were coalescing around support for different countries, the Federalists for Britain, the Anti-Federalists for France. And throughout his presidency, Washington tried to steer a course of strict neutrality between the two countries, while promoting commercial relationships and vigorous trade with both sides of the conflict. His address makes clear he did, not, he did so not because neutrality was an end in itself, but because he feared that taking sides could split America, split this country apart. Washington also believed that the nation's survival required a strong national defense. In his first annual message to Congress, on January 8, 1790, barely eight months after taking office, Washington said, among the many interesting objects which will engage your attention, that of providing for the common defense will merit particular regard. To be prepared for war is one of the most effectual means of preserving peace. In his fifth annual message on December 3, 1793, Washington offered a stronger, more substantial elaboration of this principle. He said there is a rank due to the United States among nations which will be withheld, if not absolutely lost, by the reputation of weakness. If we desire to avoid insult, we must be able to repel it. If we desire to secure peace, one of the most powerful instruments of our rising prosperity, it must be known that we are at all times ready for war. But few knew better than Washington that America must establish alliances that have as their purpose the protection and well-being of this nation without the crucial material and military support of France and other nations. The decisive battle of Yorktown and perhaps the Revolutionary War itself might have been lost. Washington was neither an isolationist nor an interventionist. Yes, Washington was skeptical of alliances, but when America's best interests were involved, he made them. Washington preferred diplomacy to war, but he knew war was sometimes unavoidable. By word and deed, as general, president, and statesman, Washington spent his public life pursuing the preservation and improvement of American society. Washington's example is thus flexibility in means to achieve the immutable end, national security. In 1787, James Wilson, a prominent founder, rejected the argument that America had to wait until attacked to exercise military power and mocked the proponents of this notion. He wrote, whatever may be the provocation, however important the object in view, and however necessary dispatch and secrecy may be, still the declaration must precede the preparation, 
and the enemy will be informed of your intentions, not only before you are equipped for an attack, but even before you are fortified for a defense. The consequence is too obvious to require any further delineation. He's saying the president must be free to act in certain circumstances. Of course, there are occasions when America has suffered grievously, including on 9-11, failing to act preemptively. And in the age of rogue regimes pursuing nuclear weapons, there clearly are occasions when preemption is prudent. For a government to be irresolute in the face of a growing or imminent threat to its citizenry is suicidal. Remember, I wrote this book 10 years ago, Liberty and Tyranny. Now, that sold a million and a half copies. The conservative does not seek rigid adherence to any specific course of action. Neutrality or alliance, preemptive war, defensive posture, nation building or limited military strike. The benchmark, again, is whether any specific path will serve the nation's best interests. It's difficult to imagine a theory under which a society could otherwise survive. Indeed, the Monroe Doctrine of 1823 and its various iterations since stand today for the proposition that the United States will not tolerate threats against its survival, whether in the Western Hemisphere or anywhere in the world. Or anywhere in the world. And so... When it comes to this issue of Iran, I'm hearing ideologues, particularly on the left, whether they be Republicans, populist nationalists, Democrats, Democratic Socialists, ideologues, who adhere to an ideological doctrine. Foreign policy is about prudence. Situations can be different. But in the end, what did Washington say? It's about survival. It's about the security of the nation. Let me put it to you this way, folks, who find some of these code pink Republicans alluring. Doing nothing in the face of a dire threat that potentially involves nuclear weapons or the buildup to nuclear weapons is no different. In fact, it's worse than doing nothing in the face of invasions of foreigners into our country. I can't think of any threat greater to this country than a nuclear threat by Islamo-Nazis in Tehran or other countries where we hope they will choose not to aim one of their newly made ICBMs with their newly made nuclear warheads in American metropolitan areas. People cite the founders and lie about their positions. As I recall, it was they who took on the greatest empire on the face of the earth. Prudence, not ideology. I'll be right back. Mark Levin, the great one. The great one, Mark Levin. Dial in now, 877-381-3811. The title of the uh, words that I read from that chapter in Liberty and Tyranny 
is self-preservation. Not national security, not national, self-preservation. Because that's what it's about. Whether it's immigration or economic system or foreign policy, it's about self-preservation. And as James Wilson said, and James Wilson was an original founder. He was a delegate from Pennsylvania. Advocate for the Constitution, a one-time associate justice of the Supreme Court, who died a pulper in deep debt. Um, He was on the run near the end of his life, as a matter of fact, because he owed so much money. You know, back then, people weren't bailing you out. And like he said, you don't have to wait to be attacked. You don't have to wait to be attacked. And he also said about the declaration of war, he said, well, you can't always declare a war. I mean, declaring a war means that you're going to husband all the resources of your country against another country or against an enemy. But all military operations don't play out that way. And so it's more of a balancing act. Depends on the circumstances. That's why the word prudence is so important. Prudence, not ideology. But at the core, it's self-preservation, the country's preservation. You don't have to wait until a rogue nation nukes up in order to realize it's a threat when they keep telling you what they plan to do. That's not prudence. That's insanity. Oh, you must be, you, you must be a warmonger. No, a warmonger. Any more than I'm anti-immigrant because I say secure the border and deport people who are here illegally. Doesn't mean I'm anti-immigrant. Doesn't mean I'm pro-war. It really is annoying when people on the right, so-called, start to use the tactics and the language of the left to try and position you and position themselves and mischaracterize with their labeling. That's what the left does. But so do the code pink Republicans. When you point out the obvious when it comes to Iran, well, you know. When President Trump says America will never be a socialist country, he couldn't be more right. That's why it's so troubling that a proposal from the Department of Health and Human Services would move us in exactly that direction. The International Drug Pricing Index is what they call it. I thought we weren't globalists. The International Drug Pricing Index would adopt socialist price controls set by foreign countries. Today, Americans get access to cutting-edge therapies for diseases like cancer nearly two years before other countries. The future holds incredible promise for fighting other very, very difficult, complex, serious diseases. The HHS proposal would cripple America's world-leading medical innovation. We would have fewer new cures, and they'd be harder to obtain. We should control costs with market-based reforms by fostering competition and by making other countries pay their fair share, not with socialist price controls. And this is where I strongly disagree with the administration. Keep America great by keeping American medical innovation great. Visit protectmypartb.com. Excuse me. Check that. Visit protectmypartb.org. Protectmypartb.org. Paid for by Americans for Tax Reform, an excellent organization. Protectmypartb.org.
Let's see here. I think it's the last one on my list. Um, Chuck Schumer is on the floor of the Senate today, not in a drunken stupor face down on the rug, but you never know. He, Chuck Schumer, with the cornrow hairdo. He, Chuck Schumer, who's uh, constantly davening when he doesn't even mean to be. He, Chuck Schumer, who's never served outside of public life in his life. In law school, he gets elected to the state assembly. Then he gets elected to the House. Then he gets elected to the Senate. A complete schmo. I've often said, when we used to have oil shortages or issues, that we could build a pipeline to Chuck Schumer's hair. Have you noticed that, Mr. Producer? A little dab will do you there, Chuck, but a big dab is unnecessary. So he's on the Senate floor today, and he's trying to trump... Uh, to tie President Trump into this Epstein situation. Every single damn issue, they try and drag down this president. Every single issue. But Trump's no Biden, and Trump's no Epstein. And they have no evidence, no information, nothing that ties Trump to the disgusting things that this guy Epstein did. Nothing. But it doesn't matter. They just keep throwing his name out there. Cut 11, go. The president needs to answer for his statements he has made about his relationship with Mr. Epstein. In 2002, he said he'd known Epstein for 15 years and he was, quote, a terrific guy who enjoyed women, quote, on the younger side. Stop. So so that doesn't mean... That the president's aware that he's a pedophile. And yet this is where Chuck Schumer goes. Always to the slime. Because he's a slime ball. Always to the slime. The president has to answer for what? You know, this guy Anthony Weiner. Weiner... Used to work for Schumer. You wear that, Mr. Producer? Oh, yeah. Wiener and Schumer were pretty tight. Are you aware of this? Schumer really, really liked Wiener. Did you know this? Now, Wiener was never a stand-up guy, but Schumer still liked him. Schumer took Wiener, Anthony Wiener, under his wing. He did. Wiener even stood on his shoulders when he ran for office. So Schumer and Wiener were very tight, Mr. Producer. They really were. And uh, nobody said that Schumer needs to answer for Wiener. Has anybody ever said that, Mr. Producer? Has anybody ever said to Chuck Schumer, you need to answer for your wiener, buddy? Has anybody ever said that? No. Crooked wiener. That's what he was. This Anthony Wiener. But nobody ever said to Schumer, you need to answer for crooked wiener. Nobody ever said that. Nobody ever went to the floor of the Senate and tried to tie wiener around Schumer. Let's see here. Did we finish with this? <laughs> but this is sick, actually. 
quite sick. And so the point is, Schumer goes to the Senate floor and tries to tie Trump. You know, the president has to answer for what he said in 2002. That, uh, that, that he's a terrific guy who enjoyed women on the younger side. And now we have information that's out there that says the president wanted nothing to do with him. Apparently when this guy Epstein was hitting on young women at Mar-a-Lago. I don't know that for a fact, but, but so be it. Just remember, this is the party of Clinton. It's the party of Anthony Weiner. It's the party of Ted Kennedy. Jack Kennedy and the women. It's the party of, uh, of Lyndon Johnson. Let me, let me ask you something, Schumer. It's in my book, Unfreedom of the Press. I don't think we've sent him a copy. I think we better. People who've written biographies about Jack Kennedy, including Professor Sabato, have pointed out that he had sex with a virgin 19-year-old intern on her second day on the job. I understand that's not 14 or 12 or 11. I understand there's a difference, but still. All we hear about is Camelot because of the horrific way in which John Kennedy was murdered, assassinated. Horrible. Nobody has to answer for that, right? It is the fact that what he did was awful, Kennedy with that intern. But there's Schumer on the Senate floor. He, he I, mean, I mean, I used to say he's the lowest of low. Now there's so many of them, it's hard, to, it's hard to distinguish one from the other. But there's Chuck Schumer today. Now you want to hear a sensible voice today? All you've heard are the insane, the people from the insane asylum, the Democrats in the padded cells. Robert Johnson is a billionaire. He happens to be an African-American. He founded BET. And he's a Democrat. But he is very fearful of what the Democrat Party has turned into and where it's heading. Here he is, interviewed by CNBC today. Cut nine, go. I've long time been a centrist in terms of Democratic politics. The party, in my opinion, has moved, for me personally, uh, too far to the left. And for that reason, I don't have a candidate in this particular, uh, in the party at this time. I think at the end of the day, if, if a Democrat is going to beat Trump, that person, he or she, is going to have to move to the center. And you can't wait too long to do that uh, because the message of, of some of the programs that the Democrats are pushing are not resonating with the majority of the American people. Well... He doesn't sound like a white supremacist to me, Mr. Producer. Sounds like a smart guy. But his party's out of control. He also said this, cut 10, go. I give President a lot of credit for moving the economy in a positive direction that's benefiting a a, a large number of Americans. I think the tax cuts clearly help. Uh, stimulate the economy. I think business people have a little bit more confident in the way the economy is going. And I think it's beginning to have some impact globally. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Robert Johnson. Guess he's going to have to be boycotted now. Where's Antifa? I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. 
New York State passed a law, Cuomo signed it into law, uh, that allows New York to hand over President Trump's tax returns to Congress because his tax returns in New York are quite similar to the federal tax returns. This law was passed specifically aimed at a single citizen. It's called a bill of attainder, and at the federal level, it's unconstitutional, and I suspect it would be held to be unconstitutional. But what I'm focused on here is the mindset, the tyranny of the New York legislature and this dumb-as-a-doorknob governor, Andrew Cuomo, to pass legislation like this aimed at a single citizen. At a single citizen. And when you file your tax returns, ladies and gentlemen, there's an agreement with the federal government that they're going to keep your information confidential. And no, there isn't a specific constitutional statute that says that the Congress can can uh, identify a single individual's tax return. I understand there's a statute. I said constitutional statute. It's not constitutional. But there you go, the tyranny of the Democrats in New York and elsewhere in this country. Also, before I leave the air, France. Will America go the way of France? That's my question. Will America go the way of France? Well, the French are now telling the Americans, us, that if we will entertain acts of appeasement with the Iranians, that maybe they'll, they'll talk to us. Acts of appeasement. Should we follow France? Luckily, we didn't follow France in the lead up to the Third Reich. Should we follow France now? And why should we? Unfortunately, France is in a significant decline. They have their own problems, and we don't need advice from France. That's for sure as hell true. Our nation's oldest colleges were founded to teach students to seek truth, recognize what is beautiful, and hold up what is good. But the vast majority of them have abandoned their missions. Locked in the grip of political correctness, they no longer allow free and open discourse. Rejecting the idea of objective truth, they peddle moral and cultural relativism. Thankfully, none of this applies to the great college, Hillsdale College. Hillsdale has remained true to its original mission, to provide sound learning of the kind essential to preserving civil and religious liberty and intelligent piety. As Hillsdale celebrates its 175th year, It remains committed to offering its students the very best liberal arts education in the land, as well as to extending its mission nationwide through its many outreach efforts on behalf of liberty. These include free online courses, the publication of its free speech digest in Primus, its Kirby Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship in Washington, D.C., and its Barney Charter School Initiative, which is helping to establish classical K-12 charter schools nationwide. What a magnificent institution is that Hillsdale College pursuing truth and defending liberty since 1844 this is Hillsdale College Hill newspaper Democrats won investigation into cost legality of Trump's July 4th event Fox News House Judiciary Democrats prepare a slew of subpoenas for Trump tied targets 
this roll call. House will vote soon to hold Barr and Ross, Secretary Ross, in criminal contempt over citizenship question. What are we dealing with here? What, what, what is this? Sounds like the Soviet Union. The Democrats in the House are absolutely good for nothing. Good for nothing. No nothing buffoons. Good for nothing. What the hell have they done that's good for this country? Name one thing. And we're going to investigate and investigate. All these clowns who are chairman. This guy Schiff and Nadler and Engel. All were pushed around on the playground. You can see it. Nadler was a slob. Still is. Schiff was a punk. Still is. Engel was a bookworm. Still is. And others. And others. Well, we're going to get this Trump. Well, we're going to use our subpoena power. Hope you saw my life, liberty, and Levin with uh, retired circuit judge McConnell. And he pointed out, you know, these subpoenas, they're relatively new in American history. They really started during the Nixon period. Then you have these idiot Obama judges, like the one who basically ruled so outrageously moronic that if Congress issues a subpoena, really there's no defense for a president or the executive branch. Now, how stupid is that? Yet that's what he ruled, and he did it on an expedited basis. There was no discovery. These Obama judges are really something, aren't they? Where'd we get them from? Saddam Hussein's Iraq? Because that's the way they seem to conduct themselves. With all due respect, of course. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think tonight's program was far better than yesterday's. Just, you know, measuring my own performance. I want to thank you for listening. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel, all law enforcement. Thank you. I want to thank each and every one of you. Please, if you haven't, go to Amazon.com, order your copy of Unfreedom of the Press. Spread the word. Push the movement. See you tomorrow. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.